0: Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Frico, senior content producer and editor of the Booktopian blog. And joining me today is Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager. And our guest today is the writer, Meg Mason, who is the author of a brand new novel called Sorrow and Bliss, which comes out
1: tomorrow. Welcome, Meg. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, Meg, it's a, a great honor to have you. Um, you grew up in an idyllic part of New Zealand. Um, where you could be having a pleasant life of sheep and rugby and Mm -hmm. volcanoes. Um, Mm -hmm. Why did you um, ruin it all by becoming a writer?
1: Well, uh, if you haven't been to where I grew up in New Zealand, then you would describe it as idyllic. It was actually a very um, normal sort of... um, suburban town that was between two mountain ranges and so the sky was constantly gray everything was very low it wasn't what you imagine New Zealand to be like so I always intended to leave but then my parents did the job for me and I followed them here when I was a teenager so I've actually been here for many years um so and went to university here and all of those sorts of things so I'm sort of partly Australian and partly New Zealand I would say half half I think we claim you in that aspect that's what actors exactly. tend to do right exactly I'm the Russell Crowe of fiction whichever way the
2: oh, that's perfect we can end the podcast right there that's I think all the reader needs to know
1: <laughs> <laughs> they put on a tremendous amount of weight for this role so it's a shame you can't see me oh <laughs> um so your novel is called Sorrow
0: and Bliss uh why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about it and how it came to
1: be Well, it was the product of a dazzling failure, which was um, my, all of my 2018 was spent writing a novel that I had to unfortunately scrap at the very end of 2018, when I truly finally admitted to myself that it had been rotten since the beginning. And despite sort of 12 months of work on it, it was still rotten. And that was quite difficult to kind of, um, you know, finally pull the pin on it. And so I spent quite a few weeks sort of in mourning for that book and for my career as a fiction writer, because apart from the fact that the manuscript was awful, the actual experience itself had been so awful and I didn't feel like I could put myself or my family or you know, the English language through it ever again. Um, And so I went away for a few weeks and um, had essentially resigned. Like I'd fully been on seek.com to see what other jobs there are um, for someone with only one skill and there weren't any so I just waited and then um, I just started writing again one day and I didn't tell my publisher what I was doing for quite a long time because I was sort of just so gun shy and I think once you when you write your first book you can do so under such a sort of sense of no one's ever going to read it I can just you know it's never going to see the light of day I can just do what I want and you don't sort of have that sense of almost it's not like being surveilled but once you've once your words really have been out there in the world and People have opinions and sort of thing, you get, I think you get less brave because you have, you know, it feels like there are sort of 14 people standing behind you in your office being like, which I, well, I don't know if I'd say that, um, you know, and you sort of start typing as though they're all there. And so I think I just froze up and I got sort of complete stage fright about writing. And then because I didn't tell anyone what I was doing and I really didn't think it was a novel, I just thought it was something I was doing for myself. Then I just had so much freedom. And that's also why it's so different from anything I've written before because I didn't think it was for an audience. I had no one in mind. And anything I sort of, anything that I thought was funny or sad or true or interesting or, you know, whatever it was, I could put it in because it was just for me. So that's why it's turned out the way it has.
2: Um, The description on this new novel involves uh, a heck of a lot of adjectives. It's uh, all at once spiky, sharp, dark, intriguing, tender, witty, distinctive, dazzling, uh, compassionate, poignant, eviscerating, brutal, hilarious, (laughs) and my favorite funny and sad. Um,
1: And funny and sad.
2: uh, Yeah. Um, What is it about?
1: That sounds like my honours thesis that was just a thesaurus tipped upside down all over the page. Um, but those are all <laughs> such lovely words. I will take every single one of them. Mm.
2: Um, yeah, but describe describe the novel. Um, describe this um, wonderful character of Martha and, and this um, uh, relationship she finds
1: herself in. Well, I think I sort of think of the novel, I've come to think of the novel as a love story that starts at the very end when the love is failing and is about to sort of, um, I guess, terminate. And the reason that I wanted to explore their marriage is I wanted to explore it from the very beginning of two people meeting all the way to the end of a long marriage, because I think often books sort of stop after, you know, the wedding or um, that sort of thing. So I wanted to see what happens in the process of a long marriage, especially one that has quite an amount of dysfunction sort of stitched into it from the very beginning, because, you know, whenever you um, meet someone and fall in love with them, once you're together, you sort of establish these patterns that aren't always the best and they will continue to, you know, impact you for the duration of your marriage until you really pull them out by the roots. And so that's what I wanted to explore in it. And I think Martha is, in terms of her story, I think if it is the coming of age, if you came of age at 40, which I think a lot of people do, and, I mean, I think it's ridiculous when you hear about coming-of-age stories where the protagonist is 18 and I'm like, so they're just starting now then because, like, I wasn't even close to coming-of-age at 18. So I think um, life forces you to grow up, but I think it lets you stay, you know, young for a really long time and then eventually it all comes grinding to a halt and it's either grow yourself up now or everything sort of, you know, starts to get a bit shaky. So those are the two elements of the story, I think, romance coming-of-age. Yeah. And Martha, of course, is, like,
0: a wonderful main character because she's kind of... When you first meet her, she's awful. Like, there's that like, scene where her husband's, like, plans that beautiful 40th birthday for her. He's about to make this beautiful, heartfelt, loving speech, and she crosses the floor and tells him to put away the speech and the palm cards.
1: I know, I know. And I think Patrick, if there's anything that I think characterises Patrick the best in the book, it's probably just the palm cards. Um, (laughs) So I just feel like he would have, do you know what I mean? He's gone and bought Mm. them, he's written them out. I can imagine him writing them in pencil before pen. Like it just, oh, I have just the pace of the of the palm but I think it's funny because I didn't actually because Martha obviously she is um spiky and she's dark and unlikable and all those things but I didn't I had to have that pointed out to me by early readers I honestly didn't think she was and I to me all her faults are a product of her unhappiness rather than a product of her sort of core awfulness I don't think she's an awful person I think she's incredibly unhappy at the beginning and I think unhappiness can make all of us mean and so I hope that, you know, people will be willing to kind of push through those mm. first chapters where she is. I mean, she is. And someone, my editor in America, described her as casually cruel. And I'm like, what? When is, she, when is she cruel? Every observation she makes is just empirically true. But apparently she is cruel. So obviously I don't know what cruel looks like, which implies that I may also be cruel casually. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just
0: think the novel is such a wonderful journey of getting to know this character when your first impression is of someone quite terrible who does something quite terrible, and coming to peel off the layers of like her kind of relationship with her mental health, but also her family and also with Patrick, and it's really cleverly done. And as you said, you started at the, the end of mm-hmm. the love story and kind of and working your way back um it's it's really funny as well at the same time but also really sad
1: funny and sad yeah (laughs) i know i'm trying to work out if it's a sad if it's a sad funny novel or a funny sad novel so maybe we can if i knew how to take a reader poll we could get people to weigh in and tell us which one it is um (laughs) maybe it doesn't matter as long as it's got those two elements in it
2: yes and and martha has this um uh, unnamed affliction, mm-hmm. uh, which is central to her character and mm-hmm. um, and pretty much the axle on which the whole novel turns. Yeah, um, why have you withheld uh, a term for it? Uh, not even a medical term, but just like a, a name.
1: Yeah, it's um, really interesting. Yeah, no, it, a multitude of reasons, and there's sort of primarily creative reasons, um, which were. I didn't want it to be a book about a mental illness and i didn't yes. want it to be a book about mental illness because to me you know the the journey that she's on to find this thing it could just as well have been to find a birth mother or to find out the secret at the core of a family it could have been anything in terms of this critical piece of information that would make sense of all her choices and who she is and how she's been formed so i just chose you know mental illness but it could have been anything and then I also wanted the reader to experience the frustration that she has felt by not knowing. So when you get to that point and you've worked for it in terms of going through her story and you've put in a lot of effort to get there, um, you I hope that the reader gets a sort of sense of of that frustration that she has always had to deal with in the not she's got this nameless thing. and so that's why I wanted to keep it like that. Um, but also, I think that it quickly, you know, I had a couple of conditions, I guess, in mind, it sounds strange to say, but that I sort of worked with. But I think ultimately, I couldn't trust myself to represent them properly either. So in a non creative way, I, I didn't feel that I was capable of of providing a, you know, a real life description of what something was like. And there's a sort of, I guess, a stay in your lane element as well. And, and I think as well, I just didn't, I just needed it to be to serve the story and so I needed certain symptoms and things and pretty quickly it evolved away from a condition which would line up with any symptoms anyway so by that point I was I didn't know what to do about it because I couldn't still call it x if it didn't match that and obviously um you know I feel responsibility just as a human being to not misrepresent other people's experience or you know, that sort of thing. So I think to redact it the way I have was just the sudden solution. I didn't know if my publisher would go for it, but, you know, because it's weird and it's presenting all manner of trouble with the audiobook, which is being recorded at the moment. <laughs> um, again, reader suggestions, welcome. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, many, many layers of reasoning, which all seem to come together with that, those dashes.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed, um, it, it was, it was, it was weird. But did then, it
1: annoy you? How long did it annoy you for a long time? The whole it annoyed,
2: time. It annoyed me for a fraction of a moment, and That's then,
1: good.
2: and then I thought, this is great, um, because yes, you're not going to misrepresent something, um, but also, um, my um, comings and goings with people who suffer um, mental health conditions is that they aren't textbook. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, we have textbook definitions that we try and group people uh-huh. towards yeah um, when they present certain symptoms but um no two um physiologies are the same and no two mental physiologies are the same exactly like so it's just, exactly. just her own um Martha-ness.
1: yeah and I think as well if you I mean we're all humans love to categorize and you know name things and I think that As well as as the author as soon as I if I named a condition any experience that you had of that condition is like oh that's what she's like do you know what I mean like it's just instantly you're sort of labeled and obviously there's you know there's some discussion of labels in the book as well but I think it's just I wanted to be able to go beyond that and I think that you're right and I mean any condition is comorbidities and all of those sorts of things so I just think it got you know, I'm just not quite enough of a doctor to be able to have um, dealt with those in a responsible way. So, I'm glad that it annoyed you a little bit, but not a lot. That's perfect. Yeah, good. <laughs> and
2: on the yeah, other I side of,
1: um, yeah.
2: oh, sorry, go on, Olivia. Olivia.
1: Go on. Oh, I was just say Yes, how question did question. you feel, Olivia? Did you did you kind of um, were you annoyed to some degree?
0: No, actually, um, I think it was a choice that paid off mostly because I got the sense it was less about pre- being a novel about x mental illness instead it was more just about how having that illness and having it undiagnosed for so long or uh-huh. ignored comes to impact on everything else in your life so from yeah. your relationship with your mother to your decision to become whether or not to become a mother the way that you interact with other people yeah and I don't know I I it seemed right like if there was that first oh, moment so where it was like jarring yeah and then and then you're like actually that kind of makes sense and now I know like you said, how Martha feels having gone through her whole life without quite knowing what was wrong and never getting that definitive answer.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm sure everybody when they first strike it will be like, is this a typo? But I can guarantee, (laughs) I promise you, it's not a typo.
2: And then on the other side of Martha is Patrick. Mm -hmm. And Patrick is um, just a guy who (laughs) Martha knows from adolescence. He yes. doesn't He doesn't swing in on a vine. He hasn't, like, rescued her from human traffickers or cured cancer.
0: No. He's
2: just this guy who's always been there
1: yeah, and, and always wanted to be with her. Yeah, um, exactly.
2: What's up with that? Why isn't he more unbelievable?
1: Because um, <laughs> I think, well, that was the absolute core of the story, the 2018 starter novel and this novel, one of the the – only similarities between them was that at the very core of the story was the fact that she ultimately fell in love with and married a family friend, but a family friend who was three years younger than you, that age gap is massive when you're a teenager. So to begin with, she obviously sees him or fails to see him because he's a child. And I love the idea that he was sort of in love with her from the first second that she spat the rubber band off her braces onto his arm um and then that sort of gets to evolve but she needs to notice that he's there first and I think that also that was a way of kind of expanding the arc of their story you know to take them from teenagers to people in their 40s I just and I found I think the people that you've known since that age I love the idea that they're furniture but also there's such comfort and safety in those people because they were your first people do you know what I mean and I think there's you know in terms of romance i think that's so romantic that they have sort of grown up together and there's this part in the book where they talk about the fact they didn't need to share the particulars of their childhoods because they were there so they just made a competition out of whose childhood was worse um so <laughs> i think i think that there, there is romance in that for me and the fact that he waited you know for her to sort of and then stuck by her once it really got rocky i think it's so romantic it's better than swinging in on a vine because you're just going to swing out the other side aren't you if you came in on a vine Mm.
2: yeah and maybe he won't look as good without the vine
1: (laughs) (laughs) after and just fitting
0: into that whole insane family dynamic that was set up with um you know there was martha's family and then also the family of her cousins Mm -hmm. and just it was (laughs) it was a crazy family and yeah but i loved them like oh that's so bonkers and dysfunctional but so much more interesting to read about
1: yeah, and I think it was fun because to put those two families against each other, I got to just do a little bit of a class element, which I always mm. enjoy. <laughs> just I mean every novel is about class is what you hear said all the time, but that was where I guess that sits because you've got that tension between this, you know, Martha's um aunt who married money and Martha's mother who married a male Sylvia Plath who hasn't actually produced anything um since his first poem so that was sort of a fun exploration and I think money is just such a critical part of family relationships and I don't really Mm. think it gets discussed all that much and I think there's a bit of a parallel maybe it's just occurring to me now my work is so layered um that (laughs) there's there's a parallel between the fact that um Martha and Ingrid are very close in age I think they're 15 months apart or something but their choices and what they're dealt takes them in very different directions in terms of you know the outworking of of what they've been dealt even though they're so close they they become quite disparate and the same thing has obviously happened with you know Celia the mother and the aunt is that they've gone in these separate directions and it's like can your relationship Mm. is it stretchy enough do you know what I mean to kind of yeah when life's pulling you in opposite ways
0: Mm, I really loved that the intimacy of Ingrid and Martha's relationship, just down to the the way they text each other. <sighs> like you have a very canny grasp of like internet humor and the way that people speak to each other in a humorous way. And I don't know, I found that very relatable. But also, it like it yes. builds up. And I'm their, I'm yeah. awed
2: that you can express it in in prose without mm. completely jarring the reader.
0: Oh, so many people crazy. can't. So many people can't do it, and it just
1: sticks out like a store farm well I think that's (laughs) because often it's typeset in a different font and not to get too Mm. technical but I think as soon as you center it bolder and comic sans it then of course it's going to be jarring but don't you think now we're at such a point where technology is so interwoven with us that it's Mm. dialogue it's all dialogue I mean we don't think I texted this person Mm. you think you just heard their voice today do you know what I mean and so Mm. I think it should just be interwoven and presented with actual dialogue but I was already doing crazy not crazy stuff I was already doing dialogue in funny ways so I just thought I'll just keep doing I don't you know there was no sort of um because I had I had tried to be pretentious for all of 2018 by the time I got to 2019 I had no pretense left so it just all got put there do you know what I mean I just typed Mm. it that's kind of how the dialogue all came about and the texting (laughs) But glad, just like, a i just gift. It was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> just the one that made me laugh was
0: like on page three, where it's the gift. Um, the Ingrid texts her of Prince William asking Kate if she wants a drink.
1: Oh my god! And the caption okay. is literally
0: Patrick though and it's like <laughs> it's just it's. You wouldn't think it would be that hard to convey that kind of humor in text, but as you've said,
1: it's an entire process. So well um. done. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And also I'd just like to say that all of the gifts mentioned are real gifts and I would really encourage anyone to step away from the book for a minute to go and look them up because they are just some quality gifts in there. Yeah, I did. Oh, (laughs) good. I'm so glad. I wish there was a way to actually include them in the book or links or something, but yes, Mm. I'm glad that you looked. Thank you.
2: Meg, you've written a splendid piece for our blog, The Booktopian, um, which is really eye-opening, um, to read having read the novel, and I think will also impress um, prospective readers of your spiky, sharp, devastatingly compassionate <laughs> writer-ness. Um, Thank you. Thank uh, you for having
1: me on that as well. It's such a privilege to be there.
2: Not at all. Um, uh, <laughs> you describe drafting and redrafting um, the same scene again and again and again until you arrive on a fully formed and fully fledged um image or version of Martha Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um what was that like what did you discover in that process
1: um in terms of writing Martha specifically or the whole book
2: Or, or, or just that that redrafting of one scene
1: yeah well I think um so obviously I wrote the whole book um again but I also there were some scenes that specifically the vignettes there's kind of these um little moments that occur throughout they're interspersed throughout and you could lift them all out and on one level maybe it wouldn't make a difference but to me those short scenes are where most of the characterization happens because they're just Martha's observations or a small interaction that she had that particular day and I think they do more of the heavy lifting than great sections of prose and you know I've tried to sort of um there's not a lot of physical description in there because I personally don't have much of a visual imagination as a reader. So if someone describes, you know, red hair and wide set features, I really don't see it. And I don't think that wide set features tell me anything about who this person is um, (laughs) because it was an accident of genetics. But I think um, anything that I can do to show Martha making one choice over another choice or um, those sorts of things, any, any choices you present them with. Um, just continue to whittle that down and so I think those vignettes tended to actually emerge fairly whole and I I hate it when writers say that because I'm like I don't know what you mean emerge whole and that sounds really easy and I know it isn't easy so um, I don't want to hear you talking anymore but they did just flump out and some of them if there's an autobiographical element some of those Uh, autobiographical in the sense that I've seen them or collected them or witnessed them so they haven't all happened to me but there's some kernel of truth Um, and then the other sections I guess the longer sections the whittling was probably just to find the most important um, events and things to kind of leap from one to the other and to bring it back around to make it tie off at the end was that was probably the work of it was more technical kind of stuff so Um, I think we've all forgotten your original question because I've been talking for like eight minutes. But I think, um, yes, it's to go back and again and again and again. And the example that I think I give in the Booktopia piece is why she hides in an ambulance toilet instead of a regular toilet at her birthday party. And it would have been a regular toilet to start with. And then to make it more and more specific to Martha and to give her a choice, is to to make it this particular kind of toilet. So why did she choose that one over another one? Is it because she's never planning to come out? Is it because she doesn't care about other people who might need it? And so I think those are the tiny things that start to show her. Same as Patrick's palm cards, because he could have just memorized that. He could have typed it on A4, but he went with palm cards from the news agent. So that's all we need <laughs> to know about the two of them, I feel.
2: Yes, and it's it's it's, it's almost like a, a distilling of character into these these tiny flavors.
1: Yes, exactly, <laughs> and I think that anyone who writes, and sometimes it's really difficult because at the start you start writing and you're like, well, this is a flat and one-dimensional, uninteresting person who has nothing to show us. But that's because you haven't written them yet. And when you get to the 90,000 words, which you should just plow through without stopping or ever reading what you wrote yesterday, um, by the end you will know who they are. And then you go back to the beginning and you're like, oh, she would never say that, you know what I mean? And so now you know exactly what she would say because you've just spent three months with her. or you know. So that's how you actually get to it is by writing her in the first place.
2: That's profoundly put. Um, this <laughs> is a um, book that gets under your skin. Um, hmm. uh, like you, were, you, know, you kind of wanted to hate it um, and then ended up <laughs> adoring it. Um, <laughs> I think uh,
1: yeah. people probably feel about me as well. So
0: that's another one. <laughs> I'm just like it on thing. the record that I didn't want to hate this novel. <laughs> <But> it it <laughs> took me a while to read. Like I read the first half like in bits, like in pieces, and then just gobbled it all up like last week. Mostly because
1: I knew the podcast was coming up, and
0: but then it hooks you.
1: It hooks you. Yeah, I hope so, and I think there's a shift that happens. And I again, Mm. I can't really tell for myself because you, it's fairly nonlinear, and you're going back and forth all the time. But somebody that I read talked about the second half is a bit more impacting. Like you have it suddenly. what maybe seems quite light because the style's fairly economical and quite spare and you just think you're just being told things and then I think events maybe gather a bit in the second half and that's where more of the emotional resonance comes in. Not sure up to you to say yes or no to that one.
2: (laughs) I'm gonna say yes. I'd I'd, I'd agree with that observation.
1: You're like no Meg that's not what (laughs) happened.
2: Books are, are books, uh, we're supposed to say, are are, are like children. You can't have a favourite and you can't um, lock them in a hot car. (laughs) Um, But how do you feel about Sorrow and Bliss as opposed to your first novel? You Be Mother, mm-hmm. or even your book of nonfiction, um, Say It Again in a Nice yeah. Voice, which was all the way back in 2012.
1: I know. I was, like, 31. It was so sweet to think I had anything to say at 31. Um, <laughs> but um, sorry if you're 31 because you guys actually do have stuff to say, evidently. Um, so no, well done. I um, <laughs> no, i I, No, I mean, there is a part of me that feels, I mean, this is hard to say in a way that doesn't make you want to hate me um but it's just a lot better um than both of those books which is a product of both practice and of age because obviously i've got a whole extra decade to draw on and also i've just been doing this a lot longer so i think you be mother was kind of the novel where i learned to write a novel and i haven't read it since the day it came out because that's obviously a way to make you hate yourself um and so i can't really remember what's in there but i'm sure there are a few nice lines but i i you know, it's, um, I hope I've improved. And then I think my first book was just my first book. And clearly, I had to flush all the autobiography out um, before I could do anything else. And so they're sort of dear, in the sense that they got me to where I am, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend them. Um, (laughs) I have to recommend them. But it's okay if people like this one the best, because so do I.
2: Good. <laughs> that's great. And if they if they have enjoyed the other ones, they're going to enjoy this one 100 times more, it sounds. Oh, I hope
1: um, so. It'll be fun if they get on Goodreads and be like, this is much better than her other ones. And I'll be like, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know the other two aren't up to the mark, but that's, I already know. So, but thank you for pointing that out and starring me. <laughs> Which is, what, do you know it's
2: classic
1: Martha uh, move?
2: I'm, I'm interested that you said you had to flush out the autobiographical notions mm-hmm. uh, because you you have had a career as a, a journalist you're at the the times in london and then you wrote for these big magazines like Elle and vogue and mm-hmm. the new yorker mm-hmm. um uh do you um see yourself exclusively now as a peddler of lies um or, or is non-fiction still a thing
1: um No, I think that this was a book that kind of marked, I guess, the um, point at which I officially wanted to stop talking about myself, which is ironic to say because here we are talking about myself. But (laughs) in terms of in my work, I had said everything. You know, someone said to me, having written, you know, say it again, a nice voice was about having young children, and they said, oh, will you write a book about teenagers? And no, I won't. And it's partly because, you know, that's no longer their my property, as it were, not that they ever were, but you know you own the stories, I guess, and I don't own teenagers stories. so i but I also just I just don't have anything more to say. Do you know what I mean, from my own experience? that that could be sustained on a page. And I think, you know, when you're writing magazines, a lot of it's first person and you're trafficking in your own experience. And at some point you just get so sick of yourself. And I think inventing is just so much more fun. There's so much more freedom in it. Um, And so I think, I hope that this is me from now on. And I was updating the bio on my website. And I'm like, do I put journalist in past tense? Because that feels like a big move. Um, So I keep (laughs) logging onto Squarespace and toggling between is a journalist and was a journalist. So depending on what day you get there, you'll, you'll think I am or I was. I
2: see. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're in a process of transition. I'm in a
1: process, exactly. I'm I'm transitioning to um, one or the other. Who knows what will happen? It's a funny time, anyway, isn't it? For anyone telling stories, it's um, it's mm. been an interesting year.
2: Yeah, that's another statement. Um, you you will, you will write another novel. Will you please write another novel?
1: Oh, <laughs> I I hope I can. I've started to take notes for one. Um, and after I. Um, to circle back so elegantly and seamlessly to where we began after I um, finished writing Sorrow and Bliss because I can't really read fiction when I'm writing because I'm so scared of accidentally plagiarising it or being sort of um, contaminated by it in a positive way. But um, in terms of, and actually this is another thing in, that you'll recognise from the novel, but Martha talks about the fact that she, when she tries to write a novel, she can tell whoever she was reading at the time because, you know, she's produced some poor man's Didion or poor man's, you know, Plath or whatever it is. Um, and or so poor like, man's Child. Exactly, poor man's Child. Can you imagine poor man's Lee Child? <laughs> um, anyway um a lovely child and what i was gonna say was before i went off on that tangent was just that um i went back to reading janet frame after i finished sorrow and bliss and just remembered how much i loved her and she's a new zealand novelist and there was all of new zealand on the page and i didn't realize that i could still be homesick after 20 years and so i think that the next one might have to be set there and all the words and all of the new zealand gloriousness that i've forgotten about will have to be um will have to be hauled up from the deep and put on the page especially if i can't go home for months and months and months as it looks like at the moment
0: hmm. well we really uh, that i'm i'm down to read any novel you write even if it's set in your living room <laughs> oh thank you actually after this year it might well be um, yeah, I feel like we're going to get a lot of introspective novels or a lot of really bad pandemic themed novels. This is
1: the thing. Are you worried a little bit? Like, yeah, in the a year, is pandemic fiction going to be the only thing that's available? Like, there'll just be one large category of fiction because we're not going to want to read about it, are we? Or are we? No,
0: I reread Station 11 and I'm like, that's it for me. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I in my mind, that's the ultimate pandemic novel and anything else I'd have not interested yeah. in reading about.
1: Yeah. But it's funny because this is essentially our generation's World War II and we're, mm-hmm. people are still picking over World War II, aren't they? I mean, in fiction. So I'm wondering what if it never goes away and we're still kind of Berlin 1939, Sydney 2020 is going to be us for the next however, however long. I don't know. I guess we'll wait and see. You should know about that, Ben, because this is fiction's your department. Can you just can you speak to that? I
2: don't know, but I I <laughs> do know that there's a very good novel um, that's going to be set in New Zealand that I'm looking forward to in the future. Um, uh, <laughs> T, that's about, T, C, that, Yes. That's that's um that's about all of the future I can predict right now.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's good. One of my favorite things that I will always take forward from journalism is that whenever something's to come on the page, you know, like fact to come or details to come, you put a TK because there's no words really that have TK next to them. So you know that it you know that it's not meant to be there. So TK meaning to come, it's like Meg's next novel, TK. Um, it's totally to come, I just have to write it first. And then and then we'll be back on this channel to discuss it. Please.
0: (laughs) Well, I can't wait. Um we should probably wrap it up there unless you had any pressing questions, Ben.
2: No, but I I think we should um put a link to that terrific blog article and um all the gifts um that we can remember from the book (laughs) um in our show notes.
1: Like a Spotify playlist but of gifts. That was
2: <laughs> I would love
1: it because I don't have the techno- technological now to be able to do that. But if you do it, are you guys both millennials by any chance? Yes. Thankfully yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave it as a Gen Xer. I'm going to leave it in your hands if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll do. Um, <laughs> thank well, thank you. you
0: for coming on to the show, Meg. Um, oh,
1: Thank you for having me. It's such a treat to just and uh, otherwise you know featureless Monday afternoon to get to chat to you so thank you and thank you to all the lovely Booktopia readers who buy the book and discuss the book it's just such a privilege when it's something that you've written in your little shed all alone for a year to think that it's out there in people's you know houses and bedside tables and glove boxes or wherever it is I'm very grateful so thank you.
0: Wonderful. Um, And if you're listening along at home, you can order your copy of Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason from booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.